us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. In college, I was a psychology major. Now, psychology, as with any other field of study, has its own collection of subfields. There's clinical psychology, developmental psychology, educational psychology, health psychology, the list goes on and on. My favorite psychology classes that I took was social psychology, the study of how people's thoughts and feelings and actions are influenced by the presence of others. It was my junior year when I took the introductory social psychology class. It was there that I learned about the theory called cognitive dissonance. This theory quickly became a favorite of mine because once I understood what it is, what it was, I realized that I could see it everywhere in my life and the lives of others. I admit that my understanding of cognitive dissonance is limited because I only studied it in the one introductory course of it. Uh, but if I may explain what it is, cognitive dissonance is a feeling of contradiction an inconsistency between our beliefs and our actions. For example, cognitive dissonance might feel like a situation where you want to change your career, but can't afford the necessary education or time off to make it happen. There is inconsistency between what you want, which is you want to change your career, and what you can and cannot actually do, which is you don't have enough money, you can't afford it. It can be said that a depressed person experiences cognitive dissonance. You want to be a cheerful person, but you are just too depressed. It's Again, it's an inconsistency between how you want to be, which is you want to be a cheerful person, and how you actually are, that you are depressed. Another example would be when you really want to turn down an invitation, but you feel too guilty to do so. This would be an inconsistency between what you want to do and actually what you feel you should do. Are you getting the ideas of what cognitive dissonance means? Let's talk about a few more examples now in a church setting. You want to give more time to church but you're just too busy. You want to help serving, but you feel you do not have anything good or you're good at to offer. Or maybe you want to fast in order to grow closer with God, but boy, you're just too hungry. As you may guess, I went through that a little bit back in January when I was fasting. So anyways, my point is that we experience these kinds of inconsistencies, this cognitive dissonance a lot in our daily lives. We encounter contradictions between want and should, inconsistencies between our expectations and realities we find everywhere in our lives. We can also see this in our faith journey and in our spiritual lives. As you might know, today is Palm Sunday. 
And it's the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry. This was truly a remarkable day for those who followed Jesus. It means a celebration of Jesus who had come to enter the capital of Israel as a king. People waved. Here you go. I have some palm branches. People waved palm branches, put their cloaks on the ground along his path. They were the things that people did when they recognized the presence of a king. By doing these things, people were acknowledging that Jesus was their king, not the king who actually ruled over them at the time. People were excited. People had certain expectations for Jesus. People thought that Jesus was the great successor to King David. People thought that now the world was finally going to change because of the appearance and presence of Jesus in the capital. Well, people's guesses were right, but not in the way they expected. People had their own particular beliefs about who they wanted Jesus to be. They expected Jesus to be a savior who is also king, someone who came to rule in power and exercise political dominion. They, ex they expected Jesus to become a strong military leader who could fight back against and eventually overthrow the oppressive Roman government and set them, God's people, free once again. This time is around Common Era 30, and God's people in Israel have been living under Roman occupation for quite some time now. They weren't living as slaves as they had in Egypt during the time before the Exodus, about 1,500 years earlier. But their religion now was subject to governance and control by the pagan Roman government, who worshipped multiple gods and to which they were forced to obey and pay taxes. In terms of location, they were fortunate this time in that they remained in their homeland rather than having been taken away into exile, a foreign land like their ancestors were. They had their own temple left intact and were free to go to worship as they pleased and make sacrifices to their God. But in the truest, in the truest sense, in their hearts and in their lives, they were not free because they weren't independent. The way they could worship, the way they worked, the way they paid taxes, the way they could be part of the society were controlled by a foreign military and government. So they wished, desired to be their own people again and having their own independent nation, having their own king who can rule over and guide and protect them. And as their model of a great, perfect king, they held up the good old days of King David. The story of the first king of Israel, David, has been passed down from generation to generation. Everyone knew the story of this great, strong king David who could defeat the giant, tall Goliath, united the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, settled the Ark of the Covenant that contained two stone tablets of Ten Commandments, and established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. During his kingship, 
David conducted great military campaigns, using his army to beat back the locals, fight off the terribly strong Philistines, and to establish a secure, independent kingdom for his people. David, who succeeded at all those things, was praised and hailed as a great conquering king by his people. And this great memory of King David is what drove the expectation of the people, who believed that another like King David had finally come. In today's passage, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's entering into a crowd of people who have heard of wonderful deeds he has done in Galilee and beyond. The healing of the blind and the lame, the feeding of the five thousand, and the, even the raising of the dead. The rumors about Jesus have been spreading for a long while now. The expectations of the people have been climbing higher and higher. They are holding out great hope that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, might be the one they would have waited all along, the Messiah, their Savior. They were expecting that this man Jesus of Nazareth could well be the successor to great King David. They thought that this man Jesus, like David, might be that leader who brings everyone together as one united nation, free from the restrictions and miracles, free from restrictions and control of the oppress oppressive Roman government. In the number of miracles Jesus performed, they saw power and authority of God living in Him, which could be turned to conquest against the Roman soldiers and government, and set the people free at last again. These were the sort of expectations people had for Jesus, while waving palms, putting their cloaks on the road. This is why the people were cheering wildly as Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a colt, the child of a donkey. How did his followers respond to him entering Jerusalem as king? Well, the response at the time was overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. They fanatically welcomed him. They welcomed Jesus as they would welcome a great warrior king, like they would welcome King David himself. And in that time and place, laying cloaks and palm branches on the ground before a person was a gesture, used to welcome a warrior king such as this, someone who could lead the nation to success and conquest. People were ecstatic. They were shouting. They were shouting, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." This is a quote from Psalm 118. People are shouting this line, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord," intentionally knowing that historically this line was used when a king conquers and wins a battle with a military might. Hosanna! They cried out, a word which means "Save now." Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. You can imagine these people thinking to themselves, "Finally, a king has come who can rebuild our great kingdom. He can make our kingdom great again, just as our ancestor David did." 
This is what the people expected. They wanted Jesus, their desired king, to step in and save them now in exactly the way they wanted from their past memories. Right now, with force, immediately. They've been seen and heard that Jesus has the power to work miracles with a wave of his hand, with just a touch of his garment even. So they knew Jesus could do it. They wanted to see the miracle done to save them and that they wanted to see it now. Well, is that what happened? Let's hear what happens. Let's see. Godfred reads for us. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 to 19. Then they came to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Thank you. This is Jesus' response to the people crying out, Hosanna, save now. Instead of going to confront the Roman authorities to boldly proclaim the judgment of the Lord against the oppressors, Jesus turns his attention directly to the temple itself, where he teaches and preaches, to the house where the people had gathered together to worship God. And with the same boldness and strength by which he drove out demons earlier in his ministry, he began here to drive out the people who were doing their regular day-to-day work in the courtyard of the temple. He channeled the force of his displeasure into the very people who had gathered to worship God, that is, his own people. This is totally cognitive dissonance. It is a complete disconnect between what the people expect and want for Jesus and what Jesus actually does. This long-expected and awaited king, the descendant of King David himself, starts from a place of anger, not at the oppressors and enemies, but at his own people. In verse 16, we see Jesus overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, kicked them right over. Why was he so upset? What made Jesus do all these things? Jesus has good reason, like he always does. Back then, people who came to the temple were expected to give animal sacrifice in order to be forgiven their sins usually doves or other similar items. And because this was the time of Passover, the great celebration of Exodus from Egypt, people from all the neighboring regions had gathered together and to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Some of them needed to exchange money so they would have the right local currency to buy the necessary sacrifice sold at the temple. 
And because how busy it was, these sacrifices are being sold at a raised price. What's more, the sacrifices were also being taxed on top of that well to make sure that both the temple and Roman King Herod could get a cut too. When this all added up, the cost of a single sacrifice could go well beyond the reasonable fee, exceeding easily an entire day or two or more wages. And all of this was happening in an area called the Court of the Gentiles, a place exclusively for non-Jewish believers. This meant that the place of worship specifically for the many from outside who came to God had become a means of profit for those few on the inside. This upset Jesus. Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The very place that was set aside for all people of all nations had been turned into a marketplace. The business in the marketplace was being done in such a way that the temple could profit at the expense of those who had come to worship. People lifted their praise to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, hoping and expecting that he would deliver them now. Then and by the sheer force of God's divine might and military power. Instead, Jesus directed that might in word coming to cleanse his own people and their religious practices. Jesus brought to the light cognitive dissonance of his people. Jesus brought to the light the cognitive dissonance of their faith. They pretended their house of worship is for all people, but their practices did not reflect that. Despite the fact that the temple ought to have been a house of prayer for all nations, the people behaved in such a way where it couldn't be called that at all. Instead, it had become a place where only the temple leadership and those who worked for the temple building benefited. It didn't seek to help those who came seeking closeness and connection with God. Rather, it took something, stole something important from them. Purified and sacrificed place of worship. Often in his ministry, Jesus made a point of calling out these moments of cognitive dissonance in our lives, the inconsistencies between God's ideal, God's will, and our own wants, beliefs, and actions. Jesus called for the poor to be cared for and the rich to sell all they have. He called for those in power to lay it down and for the voiceless to be given voice instead. He called for the first to be last and the last to be first. In psychological terms, we call this cognitive dissonance, the inconsistency between idea and reality. But in our community of faith, we can call this by a different name when we see an inconsistency between what God says and what we actually do. Sin. The word sin in Greek means that something is not on target. That there, there is a disconnect between the reality of our actions and God's call on us, God's will. 
when our actions are not responding to what God asks of us, we commit sin. And because those of us who believe in Christ do not remain forever in darkness, those, sin, those sins are confronted, revealed, and exposed through God's light that searches our hearts and our actions. One of my own big cut-to-the-heart moments of realization came when, um, when I was confronted with my sin as I struggled to forgive someone who had hurt me. I had all the good reasons not to like this person because they had deeply hurt me. I was bitter and always found reasons to blame them for things, feeling justified because I was the victim of their behavior. I reached out to God asking for help, calling out Hosanna, save now, asking God to save me now many times. But the answer I got wasn't a sudden or dramatic change, but the continual reminder that I needed to repent and apologize for, to this person for holding onto my bitter attitude. Over the last few years, as I have come to realize the role Christianity plays in the world, in particular the role it plays in America, I began to realize that not speaking up, not taking action, can actually contribute to the growth of sin in the world. Allowing racist and sexist and discriminatory remarks to go unchallenged is just as bad as the disciples standing idly by, refusing to take a side as Jesus stormed into the temple and started overturning the tables. Our God is a God of justice, and when sin remains, God does not remain silent. God brings all things to light. The second scripture we read today shows us that there are two ways we can respond when sin is exposed. We can be like the priests and scribes and temple leadership, getting offended not at the injustice, but at the person who exposed things and grow bitter in our hatred, in their hatred of them. Or we can be like the disciples, bystanders who do nothing at all about the sins before them. Sure, they are not active participants, but by letting it go unchallenged, they are still part of the situation, contributing to the sin with their silence. When your sin, our sins are exposed, how do we respond? Do we respond like the gaslighting priests, blaming others for expo exposing our sins, or like the silent disciples quietly waiting for someone to do justice without them? Or is there another way we can respond instead? Yes, there is another way. And thankfully, we can also see this other way at work, described rather in details in Scripture. Today's story doesn't end at the place where we stopped reading. The sin of being an unjust and discriminatory house of worship was taken up to the cross, and the new life came as a result. Do you know what happened? Our transformation was brought about the way only possible through Jesus' blood and the power of his resurrection. 
the disciples living into repentance for what their temple lives had been set out to make life and ministry anew. If you really want to see how this played out, I would suggest you read uh, Acts Act 2. The disciples broke down the walls that divided men from women, Jews from Gentiles, the haves from the have-nots. They came together as one people, breaking bread and praying regardless of their background. They sold their possession and shared everything among themselves according to the needs of the people. This was the birth of the Christian church and this new way of being together brought new converts to the church and it began to grow. And this was only possible because they took Jesus' confrontation with the temple to heart. They examined their hearts and their following actions. To be a Christian means to be open to the unexpected ways in which God shows up in our lives and speaks to us. We shall give him praises saying, Blessed is the one that who comes in the name of the Lord, only for Jesus to show up in a time and a place that we don't expect, ready to confront the sinful beliefs and practices that are not on target of God's kingdom that we have been part of. Sometimes God flips the table on the things we have done. Other times God kicks over the tables of the unrighteous things that we have been a part of, but having taken no action to speak or stop against. Looking at these things in ourselves is certainly not fun. It isn't glamorous or uplifting. Oh, it's certainly not something to which we want to testify out loud. But look at the disciples of Jesus. The growth of their new community, the first community which we now know was the beginning of the Christian church, came as a response to Jesus challenging them on the way their house of worship had been run before. Jesus might not have been kicking over the tables at them, but they saw what Jesus did, listened, understood it, and took it to heart. They might never have said the right words of repentance for what they had been a part of before this day, but their actions after that day spoke louder than any words could. And this radical change in the way they did church, the change that came about after the Holy Spirit descended. They went from a temple of divided walls and to limited access to a house of prayer for all nations, very literally. God's cleansing the temple led them to examine their hearts and assess their actions or lack of they took what Jesus did to heart and they changed direction. Changing directions, that is what repentance literally means. And the disciple were able to do that, to change directions, repent. Because Jesus had gone before them and shown what it means to do that.
we enter Holy Week, going into this time where we examine what things within us are responsible for placing our sinless Lord and Savior up on that cross. I pray that we might have the courage to look inward, to examine the ways in which we practice, believe, and dream into being growth for our community. May we have the courage and strength to change direction when God calls us out for the inconsistencies, for the dissonance between our practices and God's perfect will. Have mercy on us, O Lord, as we are sinners to stay and forevermore. Amen.